craft beer lovers and brewers like you and me are looking forward to safely enjoying a beer together in tap rooms across the nation and the world. Know what else we can look forward to this year? Brewery DB, the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information, is unveiling an all-new platform for brewers and fans of craft to find the ultimate brewery experience. Brewery DB is the most complete database of breweries and beers available. More than a million craft beer lovers visited breweries in 2019 after searching for and planning their visits at brewerydb.com. Breweries can get in front of craft beer lovers looking for a cold one by going to marketmybrewery.com and creating a profile. Craft beer lovers can follow Brewery DB on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn to get the latest updates on the new platform scheduled to launch early this year. The best part? It's all free. Good Beer Matters shares the stories of craft and culture found in every glass. And I'm excited to announce that the Good Beer Matters podcast and Brewery DB are collaborating this year to help you get to the bottom of it. Visit us at goodbeermatters.net and brewerydb.com to finally have the experience you've been missing. My name is Jeremy, and this is Good Beer Matters. It's not just making CO2 bubbles and ethanol for people to have that in the beers. It's the flavor. He looked at the, the microbiology, and he proved that yeast was living. He proved that uh, yeast caused the fermentation. Handling them, learning language around them, not knowing it was microbiology, just knowing it was something once upon a time a caveman stumbled upon a pool of bubbling barley he tasted it smiled and began writing the story of beer my next guest has spent his career contributing to the story of yeast and humankind in this episode he takes us deeper to explain the serendipitous story of these tiny microbes i've studied traveled and tasted my way through some of the best beer the world has to offer over the past few years, I've also spoken to beer industry leaders from around the globe, and one thing is certain. The art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. There's a story of craft and culture found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 72 of Good Beer Matters with Dr. Chris White of White Labs. with uh, home brewing, with professional brewing. Um, he's really uh, literally synonymous with uh, uh, yeast as well. Um, uh, Dr. Chris White, thank you so much for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast. Hello, happy to be here. Thank you. Um, uh, before we kind of dive into um, the story of, of yeast and the influence it's had on our uh, on our culture and humanity. Um, will you give us just a, a little background about uh, you and uh, White Labs in in the beer world? Um, yeah, I I, um, I grew up in California. We went to college at UC Davis and got interested in beer and biochemistry at the same time. Um, now I live in San Diego, where I started White Labs 25 years ago. Uh, a little more now in, in 1995, and to make yeast cultures for brewers, originally home brewers, then commercial brewers, then distillers and winemakers, and so on, and really get into uh, 
working with all sorts of beverage fermentation from the yeast production, bacteria production, to the lab testing and teaching and, and all kind of aspects of, of the fermentation science. And so you supply yeast to people like me, a home brewer, to uh, 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 breweries uh, around the country, and you have several locations. So you're actually supplying yeast uh, to breweries and, and, and other fermentation uh, beverage companies around the world, correct? Right. We now have uh, three manufacturing locations, San Diego, California, Asheville, North Carolina, and Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, for mostly the European area. And we we make... Uh, small batches of different yeast strains uh, every day um, and bacteria strains in uh, kind of a, a lab method and, 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 and sterile. It's a little different than a brewery or winery would do or something like that, but but more on the lab side. So we make these little cultures of, uh, of yeast, all these different strains, um, get them ready to ship to different uh, breweries and, and retail stores and things like that around the country uh, every day. So does uh, White Labs uh, make all these uh, um, fermentation bugs, because you did mention yeast and bacteria, um, do you cater specifically to different beverages, or do you get into yogurt, cheese, chocolate, and, and, and whatnot? Um, we really stick uh, currently with beverages. We started with beer. It's beer still the biggest uh, part of our company uh, because uh, there's a lot of demand for yeast, and, and bacteria as well, but yeast because beer is made so often and uh, and consumed so rapidly around the world. Um, we, but doing that, we we you know we started working with other beverages like distilled spirits, kombucha, wine, cider, mead. Um, so we've kept our microorganisms to those kind of and testing and things to those products rather than chocolate and coffee we've done special projects with coffee and a few other things because there's yeast uh in all of the fermentations um but um and we have a kitchen uh restaurant in Asheville, north carolina that's connected to our uh, white labs yeast factory there and we do a lot of experimentations with different foods uh, but we don't make a lot of those cultures for commercial companies Gotcha. So that that might be uh, White Labs 2.0 in the future, but we'll we'll, we'll get to that. Um, r- right now, I, I really want to uh, in our discussion. I want to go back in time to um, you know to that moment when uh, our uh, caveman ancestor Grog uh, discovered that pool of bubbling barley. Um, uh, I've I've heard reports from very reliable sources talking about how uh, we have uh, substantial evidence that suggests that we went from caveman hunter gatherer societies to a more agricultural um, the pre civilization society just because we realized we like that pool of bubbling barley we want to grow more of that and we kind of need to stay in place to make this happen. What's your take on that early, early um, evidence of of uh, fermentation? Oh, my thinking is it goes back further than that. Ooh. You know, because, yeah, when I started, you know, I heard numbers like 5,000 years ago. People started making beer 6,000 years ago. And they started, and I thought, well, why would they just say it right there? You know, I mean, a couple hundred thousand years minus six. That's a long time without alcohol. Uh, for Homo sapiens, and uh, so you know, really, what it was was the the written uh, Egyptian writings of beer, and so okay, now people have gone a little farther back, 
into um, you know uh, kind of the early um, as you say uh, settlers and farming I started to grow barley but you know that was for food and beverages I think but uh, they were making beer some kinds of beers and stuff before that uh, it just didn't start there on the you know uh, um, that plateau of, of um, you know kind of current day uh, Iraq and those areas mm-hmm. I, I think it started before that Interesting. And, and of course, um, you know, anyone who is just really, really into this, you know, has um, read the books and, and learned about that uh, first, uh, again, the name, it just escapes me right now. Um, I should have had my coffee before this, but, um, you know, that Sumerian poem that really talks about um, brewing. And, right. and, and, you know, and, and of course, this is this is millennia old. I mean, I, I've heard 5,000 years of brewing six. I've, I've heard up to uh, evidence showing 10,000 years of brewing. Um, and and to me, it's kind of impressive. I feel humbled that here I am in this point of time, carrying the torch from 10,000 years ago to 10,000 years from now. Um, and and just understanding that there's a long history there. you just can't find much older, you know, than fossils over 10,000 years ago. So, you know, there's there's human remains found of, of 60,000 years and 50,000 years and so on. But they don't often find the uh, pottery and stuff associated with brewing uh, that you find at 10,000 years. And so kind of maybe that 10,000 years was more the first industrialization, even though it wasn't the same as a later industrialization. But where you start seeing the accumulation of the materials of making beer. And then, of course, in Europe, the real industrialization would happen later. Um, mm. But, you know, it was it was more tribal, perhaps, and, and things like that beforehand. But, um, you know, humans didn't wait 190,000 years to discover that alcohol could be made in their presence. Interesting. By ancient Easter. That's sort of my opinion and a little bit of, you know, I, I look a lot at, uh, at, at the, you know, history and, you know, history of other things like salt, you know, a great book in the early 2000s on the history of salt and how that cultivated humanity's uh, growth and, and yeast and fermentation did the same in another way. Interesting. Um, it, it, it's funny of me. Or it's funny to me that um, all these things don't happen in a vacuum. They all kind of coincide, and, and it's a much more dynamic story when you start applying all these different things together. And you know, and you know, God willing, if I have the time, I'd love to put together the the timeline of beer side by side with the timeline of human history and the timeline of these technological advances, and just kind of look at the patterns and see what was going on. I think that would be an absolutely interesting endeavor. Yes. Um, so let, let's fast forward in the story um, a little bit. I, I think it really gets interesting when we have our modern societies. Um, we have our uh, our um, little villages and small towns are brewing beer for the community, um, and and uh, even when we get it into uh, southern Germany and the Rheinheitsgebot, uh, fifteen fourteen, fifteen sixteen, um, where you know they said you know you can only make beer with with barley, hops, and water. You know yeast yeast didn't exist in their in their in their mind. Um, what? How did how did that story come about? How did we discover the presence of yeast and what yeast actually did for us? Well, it's it's an interesting, uh, really interesting history of science, and 
I, I, you know, I got so passionate about biochemistry after high school, and it said, as I said, paired with the time I started making beer at home uh, in in college, where uh, that it was a great display of scientific process. And it's funny in current times how much science is being talked about and debated. It's it's really interesting to me to watch. Um, <laughs> but uh, but I've been in science for a long longer, and you know, science continually discovers things. So, you know, it's, it's always a quest for more experiments and proving something. And so what science couldn't find one day, yeast cells, and some people would say there is no uh, yeast cells and yeast cells aren't alive. The next day when there's papers that start accumulating, research papers that say yeast is alive, it's doing the fermentation, people start realizing, oh, it is the yeast. And the textbooks have to change. The, the practices have to change. And that's how science marches along. Um, so what's not seen one day can be seen uh, with new technologies. Um, same way in physics and other things. So yeast was just a great example of that, where you know you saw the science raging in the 19th century uh, between chemists and biologists over yeast cells that had been seen for about 200 years because they had little um, handheld microscopes in Europe for a long time. But but you couldn't really put yeast under these little handheld microscopes and say it was alive. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was just something that was carried in beer. And so when Louis Pasteur put his uh, scientific expertise, already famous, uh, to beer fermentation with the idea of making French beer better and more uh, competitive to German beer, uh, he looked at the, the microbiology and he proved that yeast was living. He proved that uh, yeast caused the fermentation, which didn't invent beer, right? This is 1866. Beer had been made all this time we had just talked about. People just finally had a way of saying, oh, it's this yeast. If we can, if we can control this yeast, uh, you know, we can, we can make better beer. Like any process, right? You have some controls, you can make something better. So it gave brewers a way to make beer better, but not immediately. I mean, you had to change generations because, of course, all those brewers at the time just said, blah, who cares about that? We already know how to make beer. And, and you know, they, a lot of people didn't really listen to Louis Pasteur. Hmm. One brewery did, Carlsberg Brewery in Copenhagen, and they became the largest brewer in the world by starting to do his practices of cleaning up the beer and, and purifying a yeast strain. Yeah, they were they were the first ones to actually have a pure yeast strain, correct? Right, because Louis Pasteur, when he said, "Hey, yeast does the fermentation. Yeast is alive. This is what's doing all the fermentations. The bacteria is doing the bad things." Uh, he's, you know, people realize, well, gosh, let's just purify this yeast. But could you imagine how impossible that was in something microscopic you can't see? Tools of microbiology hadn't been invented. Medicine was not even understanding sterility and and, uh, and you know, how, how are you going to purify a cell out of a bunch of other cells when you can't see it? Yeah. So you know that's that's what uh, Carlsberg did successfully. Uh, it it um, and um, and it, it changed the beer. You know, that all of a sudden they made a beer that had a longer shelf life because it didn't have the contaminants. It tasted consistent from batch to batch. And that was revolutionary. So there was, uh, this is just a quick aside, but I'll connect it back to what we're talking about. But there was a a book I read some years ago called The Demon Under the Microscope. Um, have, have you read that? Are you aware of this? 
No, no. Uh, absolutely fascinating. It was the story of how um, a uh, how how someone uh, finally discovered and, and uh, uh, figured out uh, antibiotics, and 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 it wasn't just like a you know. You know, gentleman puts on his lab coat and goes to the lab, and aha, I found it. It was a very interesting story that kind of wove in and out of World War II all the way up through World. Um, I'm sorry, uh, from World War One all the way up to World War Two, and 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 you know, of course, the Nazi. It was just a fascinating story. I hope it becomes a movie one day because it, it really was that interesting and exciting. But all of that research that became antibiotics, that became this this COVID vaccine that we're talking about today. That all can trace its way back to the work that Louis Pasteur did and the work they did uh, discovering penicillin and and all this stuff. But but it it goes it serves to remind that uh, Louis Pasteur really did his work to figure out how to make better beer. But that be that begat all this other stuff that really winds its way up to where we are today with COVID. By my understanding, yeah, fascinating, isn't it? Right, isn't it? that uh, microbiology was discovered really to make beer better? But it changed human beings' history forever and our health uh, and uh, where we are today. Yeah, and and I just hope. And of course, we're recording this uh, as the COVID vaccine is rolling out and people are are getting their first and second shots. Um, I I just hope that people will listen to this and realize, oh my gosh, I need to raise a glass to this COVID vaccine that I just received or hopefully will receive soon because uh, it it all began with the search for better beer. Crazy. Excellent. Yeah, well said. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, so there's another story. I'm not uh, certain about this, um, but I remember years ago that they discovered that the origins of lager yeast, um, they, they found evidence of that uh, in Patagonia, I think, but somehow it uh, worked its way over to uh, continental Europe. What's the story there? Well, yeah, I've done a lot of work on that too, and, and gone to uh, Patagonia, where where the yeast was uh, first identified. Um, and it's another good example of science. This is what it's showing right now. Now, uh, there's a, there's possibility that you might find this uh, ancestor to Lager East somewhere else. People are still looking in continental Europe, but um, what has what what they're see, what we know is. If we go back to Carlsberg, 1883, they purified lager yeast because it had already been u- being used for a while in Bavaria. It got its way up into Denmark, uh, probably through some stealing some yeast. Uh, and, and Carlsberg was making lager yeast. Okay, lager beers. Now, if all of and, and then they shared it with everybody. It, that's well documented, and, and up until current times, like, you wanted their lager yeast, they give you their lager yeast. Mm-hmm. But that didn't destroy all the yeast out there, because we know there's a long history of all these ale strains. So these other yeast strains around the world that were making beer in 1883, a lot of those derivatives still exist today and are being made, make, made beer out of. But that lager yeast that Carlsberg started using, uh, you know, and a couple other types of that lager yeast. Uh, make up somewhere like 90% of the world's beer today because of the industrial lager beers. Um, and so people are really interested in that history of that lager yeast because it's a really unusual yeast. It, it, it ferments at cold temperatures, okay? So 50, 55 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really cold for a microbe. Uh, 
you know, 75 is cold for a microbe. So it's, uh, it, and so what it is, is the hybrid of the old ale strains that make beer and wine and bread and things with this cold tolerant yeast. And they found a match, you know, almost identical match of that, uh, people have been searching for that DNA uh, in a yeast strain in Patagonia, in the mountains of southern uh, Argentina and uh, southwestern Ar- Argentina. And so how did that yeast strain get to um, Germany, where in Bavaria, where the lager yeast started to be used? Um, pretty easily can happen, actually, because this all happened sort of timing-wise anyway after well, nobody knows for sure, but uh, the, the, the you know old world meeting the new world. And tons of species of things were transferred. Uh, ships coming back, everything was wooden. Uh, all it took, all it would have taken is some of that yeast to get its way to Bavaria, where some beer would be fermenting cold, struggling ale yeast, a hybrid happens, uh, natural hybrid happens, and then this is sort of natural selection, right? Then all of a sudden one fermentation goes faster, and that's the yeast that gets reused, and that's the hybrid that was created in that cold from uh, beer making area. <laughs> now, also that yeast could have come over the Silk Road. There's some evidence that maybe that um, species came from Tibet, uh, and that could have put it in an earlier date, which would satisfy some people's idea of how long it would take for that to happen. And so that research continues, but really fascinating. Well, it's just interesting. The, um, uh, you know, the long and winding road that it took for this thing to just kind of come together. Of course, we know how that all manifested afterwards. I mean, we've all enjoyed um, German Pilsners and Munich Helles and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, but but just understanding that there was a, a tremendous story and a tremendous journey that had to happen in order for these beers to happen that we take for granted on a daily basis. It's Again, I, I, I kind of geek out at, at the stories and the and you know the potential what ifs of you know had this not happened we we wouldn't have half these beers. It's really incredible, and you think about the time, the medieval times and ancient times that these things were happening. Um, these aren't these aren't yeast strains that are created in modern day labs. You know, beer wasn't invented recently in, in its concoction of this and of that and of this and of that. And ooh, here we go, we got beer. These were made. Why with just earth's raw ingredients, right? And yeah. and uh, yeast in the environment, and and brewers and things cultivating these yeast strains, handling them, learning language around them, not knowing it was microbiology, just knowing it was something godly, you know, in, in some cultures, and uh, considered it, it would bring this beer to life. Uh, and so they they learned how to make it taste good too. Right. So today's brewers still focus on flavor. It's not just performance. It's not just making CO2 bubbles and ethanol for people to have that in the beers. It's flavor. And that has been this. That's, again, fascinating that that wasn't created in the lab. Fascinating that brewers were able to capture strains from nature and cultivate them into tasting good. And so and the, the tasting good part happens after fermentation, right? It's the products the yeast make 
it's not the yeast itself that tastes one way or the other. Yeah, and I, I think uh, you wrote in your book, Yeast, um, uh, that you, well, that you co-wrote, um, you talked about that you cannot just put these ingredients together and let them sit for a while and end up with beer. It's it's the flavors that go through the fermentation process and come out the backside is really what that that we are looking for. And and there's no way around it. It has to ferment. It has to has to the yeast have to do their job so that we can end up with this product. There's no other way to do it. I've got a question for you. How are you engaging with your customers? Are you adding value or just vying for attention? If you have a business, then you are an authority and should be regarded as a partner in everyone's mutual success. But getting that message across in the first place, that's the trick. At Mountain Sea Media, I use education and storytelling to keep your brand on top of mind. So if you're done with ineffective marketing and want to create more impact, I want Mountain Sea Media to be your resource for high-value branded content. Contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com to explore the possibilities. After all, it's your story. I'll help you tell it. Yeah, I mean, you know, even today, people are searching for that solution. You know, scientists are in labs putting uh, uh, cocktail A, B, C, D together. Like, okay, I got a little bit of this ester. I got a little bit of this. I got a little bit of this ethanol. How does this still not taste like a beer? <laughs> yeah, and that's the that's the mystery of life, I guess. It, it's displayed in a beverage. Yeah, um, it, it's for the same reason. I I don't drink a cup of water and eat a bunch of uh, flour at the same time. It's just not the same experience as having some really good artisanal <laughs> bread. Um, I, I don't recommend people doing that. Um, but you know, with all this conversation about all these serendipitous um, events that that somehow occurred, so that we end up with what we have, kind of makes me think about you know a couple years ago, I've never heard of Kavike yeast, and now all of a sudden it's like the latest you know rage and trend as as far as yeast goes. Are there other um, yeasts that are extinct, commercially extinct, or lost and forgotten that? Um, that just did not have that serendipitous events that you're aware of that you can share with us? Oh, there probably are. I mean, that was right under everybody's noses, uh, including the author, you know, Lars, that found that that was kind of, hey, uh, wrote a book about yeast strains, um, uh, these ancient yeast strains, and then somebody said, hey, man, you know, we have some here in Norway. Where where he's from, so that's pretty incredible that that it was it was there all the time, you know, for a long time. These uh, Western Norway uh, farmers were uh, kind of uh, had these yeast strains, and so I am sure that exists elsewhere. There's yeast strains that you know, these were all cultivated over different times to create flavor again, and so these uh, Kvike strains have brewer's yeast. They're another hybrid where there's brewer's yeast in them, and there's this uh, Norwegian kind of hot tolerant strains, which is sort of weird to, when people think of Norway, but but it gets hot, you know, it gets hot uh, in the in the summer and um, and but a lot of yeast strains like heat. It's just that they tasted good too in the heat, uh, the flavors they make. So gotcha. you know what we what we don't know yet, we don't know, and I know there's a lot we don't know. And that's still out there, yes. Well, and and I'm going to uh, – this question, uh, in in theory, should come at the end of this interview, but i got to ask it right now. Um, you know, with, with everyone just so 
in such a frenzy to to develop the next new greatest hop is there a similar um, frenzy to develop the next new greatest or rediscover the next new greatest uh, yeast to to try like like Kvike was that latest greatest thing yeah it's just harder with yeast because hops are easy to breed like most plants you you know breed you breed hop A with hop B and you make hop C and and then you experiment with them where brewers yeast uh one of the things brewers did not knowing what they were doing but by reusing the yeast they selected out the sexual reproduction of yeast uh, because yeast can either mate or they can just divide they can clone themselves and so you know they basically they could you could Brewers were selecting consistency, not knowing it, but if the yeast doesn't mate, it's not going to make any new cells. It's going to taste kind of similar, the flavors it makes, right? Mm-hmm. You have one, you know, a whole bunch of one type of yeast strain cloning itself in the beer. And so that was all selected out a long time ago and um, way before lager yeast because they have this mutation too or selection. Um, so if they don't mate, you can't breed them. Okay. Um, okay. And so you can't just make a, a new yeast strains in the lab very easily, um, because they changing. they they will so we they will no longer really reproduce sexually. Right. Hmm. Right. Really, really hard to force them to. Uh, but people uh, have learned some ways to do it. Uh, we were involved in a collaboration on a cell paper in 2016 that that uh, sequenced 157 different brewing yeast strains. And some of that information has helped people because that those labs involved also got good at hybridizing yeast strains. So we're starting, we're kind of at the doorstep of, of new strains made, being made by somewhat breeding techniques. We'll have to see what the acceptance of the, of the world and the industry will be. But um, you, may, you may see you know, certainly you're going to see some differences in um, in yeast from the future, from from now going forward. Interesting. Well, and I, I suspect that alcohol is involved with trying to get these yeast to mate, which you know, which always helps uh, in my in my experience. But um, <laughs> right. right, right. I mean, this it, it works. You know, that we're talking about alcohol. Um, yeah. So uh, let's, uh, you know, so we go through this whole process uh, of learning about yeast, learning how to control these things. We invented the thermometer, we invented the uh, hydrometer, and, and we're getting a little bit beer savvy. Of course, we're, we're coming along just fine. But um, in, well, I, I can't speak to, uh, the, the rest of the world is still using some pretty interesting yeast, but here domestically in the, in the U.S., um, post prohibition when everything was just obscenely homogenized uh, were were there more than a handful of different yeast being used during that time of of the the big three beers uh you're right they um you know america was really showing itself in in this where uh you know, you had this, you know, you had this very, you know, another industrialization where, you know, logistics and size mattered and um, uh, portability and, and low flavors. And, and you know, so, you know, just after Prohibition, so many of these breweries opened and reopened and then just collapsed later through uh, 
through this race uh, for for uh, being able to, you know, rail beer everywhere. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating. And so what you had is you have, you know, most of these breweries had different yeast strains. And, and so same in Europe. And that's why there's a big variety of yeast strains. It's not like there's industrial companies uh, making yeast strains for them, like White Labs does today and, and other things. I mean, this was something that really breweries did. And so with that goes the yeast of the variety as the breweries shudder. Uh, fortunately, captured in some labs like the Siebel Institute in Chicago, uh, kept a, a, um, a bank because uh, they were they were around since the 1800s. And uh, there were some other institutions that, you know, there were there would be yeast banked in other places even after the breweries died. And that's where I go looking for a lot of yeast. But uh, but Anheuser-Busch and Miller Brewing Company and Coors, you know, when I started all sort of separate companies and a handful of others still had those different yeast strains. I mean, you know, most of us has grown up with the marketing from those companies. I got to spend some time with the brewing culture in those companies. And within the brewing culture, those yeast strains really, really mattered to them. But you never saw that through the marketing. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, all all the... All the marketing presence, the branding was, you know, taste great, less filling, or we are all basically we are all the same. Everything is the same. Um, it was like watching a, a Lego movie uh, played out in real life. Um, but uh, but these intercultures, um, they did they keep a bank of interesting yeast and and well, let me let me back up a little bit. I remember. Getting a hold of a, a Coors put out a pre-prohibition lager that I drank probably four or five years ago, and thinking, "Oh my gosh, that's actually pretty good." And the story on the bottle talked about how they found this recipe from pre-prohibition and yada yada yada. And so they they gave uh, um, you know the brewers a little bit of uh, a freedom to go experiment, try and come up with something new, which was very um, probably a response to the craft market, but. Uh, I can only imagine they they have all of these uh, recipes. They have this uh, bank of yeast, as you say, um, just just waiting for the day when they need to uh, pull it out and start something different new. Is that about how? Yeah, is that how yeah, they went? they they do. They they, they uh, like Anheuser Busch as, as some of these other companies, but them in particular, they built the largest yeast production plant uh, in brewing. Um, you know, and before Biotech, maybe in the world, they were also making baker's yeast. Uh, but but they, uh, because they wanted to supply all their breweries with cultures from St. Louis, it was under armed guard, it was windowless, it was not, uh, you couldn't get in there uh, without, you know, VP uh, approval if you weren't already in there. So they really uh, took their, their yeast culture seriously. But I talked to some of the old-time brewers, and they, they missed the days when it was one or two yeast strains. You know, oh, wow. if things got more varied, so do the yeast strains. Different beers take different yeast strains, and that would drive those these older older time brewers crazy. And it still drives the newer brewers crazy because yeast handling becomes a big part of the brewing process. Uh, interesting. And so each of these big breweries, they had their own, uh, I assume, biochemists uh, kind of working with this yeast because White Labs didn't exist then. Right. Right. And exactly. And so actually one of my my thinkings in the early 90s was, you know, I need to be something like the uh, it's going to sound funny, but like the Anheuser-Busch yeast factory. Right. Where uh, or you could you could plug in a different name there. But but that's that I 
I was a little familiar with the one in St. Louis already, where, look, we could, they were making yeast for all their facilities. They were doing lab work. They were doing sensory. They were, you know, the, the science was happening in St. Louis. Uh, and they were allowed, they were building breweries that didn't have to put all that science in, even though, of course, there were some. Yeah. So that's it was sort of the model of what I was thinking uh, to start White Labs. Be a place, be a, a facility that could make cultures for the craft brewing industry, who are often starting in restaurants and mostly starting in restaurants in the early 90s. I mean, where's the space for the lab? Where could you even put a lab or bake yeast? Um, and, and home brewing and so on. And, and then uh, do laboratory testing, do sensory, do education, uh, uh, be a place for that science uh, of the fermentation. Well, and I'm glad you kind of brought us up to this point. This is where I wanted to go next. But, you know, um, so let, let's let's just fast forward to the 80s. We've got uh, some great outfits and some uh, even better music. Um, but if we are one of those home brewers or one of those uh, uh, big breweries like Sierra Nevada that opened up uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, Still, White Labs didn't exist. Where were these home brewers? Where were these pro uh, micro brewers? Where were they finding and cultivating their yeast at this point? Uh, you, you try to talk to a friend who knew a friend, uh, knew somebody in Europe. Uh, maybe you did a trip to Europe and you came home with some yeast. Uh, maybe you knew somebody at a big brewery uh, that they could, they could steal some yeast for you. Uh, and then it'd get passed on and passed on and passed on and changed somewhere else. Uh, it was really hard. You know, there, there was, uh, again, Siebel Institute, uh, still going along, um, that, um, but they would, you know, it'd be $250 for a one liter, very dilute culture that would start something under, you know, a barrel, um, really much, much under a barrel because it was really a dilute culture. So basically, even if you got your hands on the yeast in some dilute format, the brewer had to expand it into the size, propagate it into the size they needed it. Brewers called that propagation. Home brewers called that starters. And that's why those words got, especially the word starters became part of homebrewing terminology because you had to. There was nothing pitchable. There was nothing you could just add in liquid form. Uh, your choice was dry form to start a culture without having to do any lab work. Um, but the dry yeast at that time was uh, in incredibly awful. I don't know how it was ever allowed to be that bad. But uh, <laughs> and I, I've could heard, not make good beer. I've heard stories of people just grabbing uh, you know, bread yeast and throwing it in there and just hoping for the best, and I can't even imagine what that would taste like. But Well, the, the, the brewer's yeast packaged in those days were really not much different than the baker's yeast. Um, and so you can imagine the flavors uh, using some of the uh, early 90s uh, packages of dry yeast. I mean, yeah. I was homebrewing then. Yeah. I know. I was using them. Interesting. It, it, it was – I know I can remember the flavors. So we're talking kind of like a, uh, a, a friendship uh, bread yeast in a little Ziploc baggie. It was like, here, throw this in your beer. Is that kind of, that's kind of yeah. the, the image I have in my mind is how that, how that transaction went. Right. Something along the lines of first yeah. one's free, tell all your friends type of thing. But people were doing it, right? And it wasn't the number that was doing it. It was everything was an adventure. You, I mean, all the raw ingredients were hard to get in small sizes. Uh, and yeast was one of those things. But yeast had been like that for hundreds of years. Hard to get. you got to know somebody. What country are you in? Maybe there's a, you know, Germany had a different way of distributing yeast to its brewers than America did. And 
in um, uh, Australia, you know, and so it, it was really different. And the United States had to kind of develop its own way in craft brewing. And, um, well, I, and I think that led to, um, or lent itself to the mystery behind and, uh, beer and, uh, uh, and, and I guess we were part of that story. I it, well, I think uh, I think you just got cut off real quick, so I, I missed part of that. But I was thinking, I, I think that lent itself to the mystery of the brewer, the mystery behind making beer at home. I I remember in, in the in the early '90s going to this shop that had uh, in 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 uh, California in Costa Mesa had great uh, wine, great beer, cigars, chocolate, everything you wanted. And I walked in to go get something. And uh, I remember seeing a box that said a homebrew kit. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, you can brew beer at home? Had no idea. Didn't even occur to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I know what you mean. I'm in, uh, actually, I'm in Davis as we speak because I still spend a lot of time here. And, and this is where I remember going, seeing a brewing and malting class going, you can learn how beer is made. <laughs> and it's just going like, well, that would be amazing. Uh, and, you know, there was a, a bottle shop here that sold a uh, hundred different bottles from around the, uh, the world. And, and, you know, and trying to started to see these different flavors, but it turns out the beer ingredients are so simple. I had no idea. It was just, you know, bar malted barley hops, water and yeast, but so difficult to make great. So we we fast forward to today. Uh, you have uh, created the technology, or technology has uh, caught up with us. So now, um, I think I heard you on a different uh, podcast talk about how you have you make thousands of strains of yeast, and you have them in a bank, and and there's and there's um, the ability to keep things pure, and your and your pure pitch keeps the oxygen out of it. And it's just this is the current state of our technology, and and. And this information is no longer shrouded in mystery. And um, it, this, you know, anyone can pick up your book. Anyone can read the book and learn about the stuff and figure this out. Um, so we can get the ingredients. We can get the knowledge um, very, very easily. But where do we go from here? What's what? What does the future of yeast the propagation hold for us? Well, it's always easier to study history than the, the, the path of the future, right? Uh, I, it's a great, great question. Um, what I do know is there will be change. Uh, there will be new yeast strains. There'll be new ways of getting yeast strains. There'll be new styles that will dictate new yeast strains. Um, and we're going to keep paying attention to that. Um, we're going to keep creating and, and you know, collecting um, and try to, you know, stay innovative uh, because change is is what's going to happen. Consumers change. Brewers change. Consumers of beer change. Um, and so what those changes are, I couldn't even begin to tell you, except it's going to happen. And those that, you know adapt to that will thrive and those that don't won't and i guess that's the history of, of almost everything wow 
um, I just the the time that I've been in beer, and certainly the time you've been in beer, just watching these changes occur um, is fascinating. I, I you know I have to admit I find myself kind of reminiscing of beer we had back in the day. You know, back in my day we had you know ESBs and we were happy type of thing. Um, uh, but it is exciting to see the the you know the tip of the spear kind of cutting through time and just seeing what happens. It's um, and how things will change. You know the advent of the brute IPA and how it didn't quite catch on, but the hazy IPA that's not going away ever, most likely. And and um, but but yeah, but not everyone I gets think, uh, brute. Was it maybe just a bad brand <laughs> or bad? <laughs> I you know I think that's a great concept. I think it can come back. I think that's one that can come back. Um, and for a variety of, of reasons, in my opinion, uh, hazies, but you mentioned ESBs. That's not gone either, right? I mean, uh, this, the fascinating thing about young people is they want to do what the older people are not doing. Yes. So don't be surprised if there's a, you know, a, a turn back to an ESB or something else, just as, uh, there was a turn back to IPAs. I mean, people in the UK thought IPAs was gone. Yeah, uh, it was nothing like an IPA anymore. It was a twenty-five IBU, three and a half percent beer, right? So, uh, home brewers, craft brewers, in the United States really helped to bring that back. But they were bringing back an old European style. And I think the same same thing's going to happen. It's going to be new to a lot of people who never had it. You're, we we have known this as something older, but. Um, if you haven't had something, it's new. So yeah. I, I could see some things like that happening for sure. Oh, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, we we don't want to drink the beer our parents drank, but you know, maybe our grandparents were onto something. So um, you know, we could see that with uh, and and your and my lifetime, we can see that with bell bottoms and and peg pants and how that's just kind of gone back and forth. And and you know, there's a million examples we can raise, but. Um, um, it, it, I totally agree with you. I I look forward to those older styles that kind of got me into beer to come back around and people say, Oh my gosh, have you had this? The greatest things like, Oh son, you have no idea. <laughs> right. 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 And you see that a little bit with the loggers today, right now. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there's, there's an interest in some of the lighter loggers. There's craft breweries making these and going, gosh, they're crushable. Well, yeah, that's kind of how, that's why after prohibition, these beers took off, um, because people want to drink a lot of them. Uh, so, I don't know. It, it, you know, there's a bit of new and there's a bit of old. That's always part of the new. Just, you know, the, the key point there is just respect your elders, and that includes beer. <laughs> right? Great. Um, so uh, before we begin our little wind-down process, um, is there anything that that you think that uh, home brewers or even pro brewers really should know, or people just in the industry, what they should know about yeast and fermentation that you think most people don't really know? Yeah, uh, you know, if you've made beer, you know about the yeast because the first time you make it, you go, gosh, I got to use yeast. And you see the transformation happen before your eyes. Otherwise, it's kind of hard to know the yeast story because it's it's not been talked about by the brewers or the marketers. It's really been behind the scenes. Uh, you may know it's fermentation. You may not. But wine, everything with ethanol in it, you know, has, has this yeast fermentation. Beer just has such low other ingredients that you taste all the yeast uh, flavors that are made during fermentation. So that's one reason we started our um, 
or our own brewery, White Labs Brewing Company, in 2012, because besides just talking about it, I wanted to show it. And uh, so we make the same beer. We built a brewery to do kind of opposite of what everybody does, make uh, a bigger, bigger batches. We make smaller batches, take a take the, uh, it, it, everything into smaller fermenters, and use different yeast strains. So the, an IPA with two different yeast strains, a, a pale ale, a Belgian, whatever it is, with two different yeast strains. And, you know, that's where you can kind of, and you can do this at home too if you're a home brewer, and a lot of people do. You know, it's fascinating how different just changing the yeast makes these beers. And I love to see that on people's faces when they come into uh, our tap rooms. And uh, so anyway, during uh, this pandemic, we said, hey, let's can some of these. We're not really open during the, in San Diego anyway, Asheville is kind of open, but during the pandemic. So we have some canning going on. You know, beer is heavily regulated, so we can only sell those in California and North Carolina. But um, look for yeast tastings like that if you can. I know other breweries do it too. Uh, White Labs just built a brewery for it. But if you can ever really, that's where you can hear. You know, listening to it is one thing. Tasting the same thing, but made with two different microorganisms. Pretty fascinating. Well, it, it, I'm glad you said that. Um, for any home brewers listening, if you're not already doing that, then you're missing out an opportunity. And, and I've been doing this for ever since I started uh, all grain and in, in, in brewing 10 gallons at a time because I'll separate them out in, in two different five-gallon carboys. And it's 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 too easy to not just pitch a different yeast into the same wort, ferment them at the uh, same temperature, keep everything the same except for the yeast, and just see how that changes the the overall beer. Uh, to me, that's just fascinating and obvious and way too easy to not even do it. Yeah, and you know, commercial breweries, uh, I, sometimes I talk to them about it, I'm like, you know, it's so easy for you to do too. Just run some off in a carboy. <laughs> you don't yeah. have to have a whole big pilot system just run some of your ward off in a in a, in a carboy like a homebrewer would use and pitch a homebrew yeast into it and just see you know as you're going along keep that that life of experimentation going in your brewery and it's it's fun yeah. and it's uh it's also really helps you tone you know dial in what you have going on what you're trying to do on your commercial scale yeah that's great um, so a few more questions for you before we uh, before we uh, get out of here, but um, we're going to transition a little bit. Um, uh, if I had the ability to turn you into the king of the beer world, uh, beer world for a day, Chris, what would you change? <laughs> oh my goodness, what an interesting question. Um... I love it. I love the beer world. I don't know what I would change. Um, I think it's full of passion and creativity and science and art uh, and uh, jobs, <laughs> um, flavors, um, and, you know, uh, a little bit of business. But, you know, most it's hard to make money in brewing, really. So it keeps a lot of the the riffraff to kind of out of, of people that, you know, are just trying to make a buck. Uh, cause it's, it's hard. It's, you can, but it's, it's way more hard work than most people would think, except if you're in the industry. Um, so, um, I guess, uh, less taxes. 
<laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like you leave it just as it is. Right. Yeah. Just yeah. Le- uh, less taxes would make beer uh, cheaper uh, for everybody to get, so uh, uh, less expensive. So you know, I I think uh, uh, beer prices have gone up a lot since uh, I've been in in this industry, and uh, a lot of that has had to do with uh, some of the raw ingredients, some of craft brewing, and and taxes. But you know, a lot often you're surprised. You know, the government does work a little bit. The brewers have been pretty good about banding together. So, uh, actually, there's been some good progress on that. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually, in a, in a past episode, uh, we talked with uh, uh, Jim McCreevy, and he talked about how uh, around World War II, the, it was the brewers were one of the first groups that banded together to raise money for for funds to help the government. So, I, I think there's a long history of of uh, brewers and taxes in a good way, not necessarily the bad way. But um, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. Um, next question is uh, your last meal and your last beer before you depart this earth. What would they be? Oh, interesting. Um, well, I'd have to have a a tasty uh, uh, Texas brisket. Um, I, I love the way they they do beef in Texas uh, <laughs> and slowly smoke it. And uh, you know, so I get, I would be happy with that as my last meal with some beans, you know, and and things, uh, sausage. Um, and I'd I'd like to have a great West Coast IPA, seventy IBUs, about seven percent, uh, a nice. Uh, kind of uh, uh, pale, uh, not too amber color to it, uh, talking about the specialty malt in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a nice meal. That that does sound good. Um, <laughs> uh, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm planning my dinner for tonight as we speak, so uh, thank you for the tip. <laughs> Um, so you have vast experience, uh, not only as a home brewer and as a beer consumer, but also in the beer side of the world. Um, so you bring a lot of um, different lenses and a lot of uh, history and, and knowledge to this next question. So I'm really curious to see what you come up with. But uh, in your experience, why does good beer matter? I think it's about making people happy. Um and not, I'm not just talking about the ethanol, right? It's the variety of beers. There, uh, it's 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 the community, um, and you know, if the beer is kind of crappy, the it's not as good. Like I, I, it's just we might as well be eating dirt. Like you know, we we want to have a good experience. Uh, we want it to taste good we want we want to sh- we want to know that care and heart was put into this uh beer and that's going to make our experience more interesting um and you know for the brewers part of it people are going to have more if it's great so perfect um now these questions are much easier uh anyone who wants to connect with uh, you or White Labs or the or the book, um, uh, how can they connect and, and learn more about it? Um, well, we've got uh, whitelabs.com, um, and uh, one of our big projects during the pandemic was doing a brand new website, which is 
going to be coming out soon, and we're excited about that. It's always uh, hard to communicate your story on old platforms, and so you got to keep redoing it. Um, we, uh, um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that's the best resource. You know, we got, uh, our, you can call us, you can go to our websites, you can go, we have yeastman.com, which is uh, a lot of the ordering uh, around White Labs Yeast. Uh, and, and other cultures. Um, my uh, East books uh, still on Amazon and uh, at the, uh, done by the Brewers Publication, so available through Brewers Pub, uh, Association as well. And uh, yeah, please come visit us and, and learn more about uh, White. There's also a site for White Labs Brewing Company, but you know you can find everything through WhiteLabs.com. Perfect, and and I'll put a link in the show notes. And I know that you guys uh, have a YouTube channel and, and some other educational resources. I'll make sure I link to that as well. Um, and yeah, and and last thing, um, do you have any final words of wisdom or any calls to action for anyone listening? Oh, just experiment. Um, you know, I, I think one thing I, I get asked a lot of questions about yeast that one of the answers could always be, well, try it, you know, experiment two different ways. Um, like how much should I use? How this, 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 you know, there, when you're in, in biology, it's uh, this living world has different results. And so uh, that's the fun of it too, you know, experiment. And experimentation also leads to possible change. Always want some change. You know, if, if I hear somebody kind of say, well, you know, I've never done anything different. It's not true. Every time you make a beer, something's different. What is it is the interesting part. But if these are raw ingredients that are grown on earth that change. Uh, seasons change, uh, assistance change. So look, looking for that change and experimenting with it for fun, I think is is very very valuable. Wonderfully, Wonder, um, excuse me, wonderful. That uh, very well said. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Chris White, for coming on to the Good Beer Matters podcast um, and just kind of sharing the little bit of a uh, past, present, and future of yeast. Thank you. It was a lot of fun for me. Yeast is often shrouded by mystery due to its technical nature, but it's been our partner to create the food and drink we love for millennia. I hope after listening to this episode, you will truly appreciate what this little microbe contributes to our daily life. Please check out the resources at White Labs to learn more. In the next episode, we explore the food and beer heritage with the first city in America to earn a global designation. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better beer education so you can level up your game. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters podcast and go to goodbeermatters.net for more resources and next steps. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.